Amen. Good to see all of you. I'm going to move this a little bit closer. Had a little saying, you need to be close to the spout where the glory comes out, right? All right. Good to see all of you. Let's stand up together. And how many of you are ready to go through the book of Revelation? Book of Revelation. Uh, you know, it's really weird. I did a To Every Man an Answer before I came up here tonight. And, um, and I was hosting it this time. So we're getting calls from all over the country, and I get this call from Reno, Nevada. And the guy says, does Pastor Jeff, do they stream this Bible study in the book of Revelation? Just ask, that's like throwing a stake in front of a pit bull. Do, do they stream this series on the book of Revelation? Well, I'm the host, and I'm saying, yes, they, they, actually, we do. So if you're watching from Reno, Nevada, you got the inside track. You got to talk to me. I told you we were going to be here. Amen. <laughs> Um, have some dear friends with me tonight, Jim and Mickey Aaron and Rich and Debbie Caldwell from way back in the early 90s. We go way back, and it's good to see them, good to have them, good to have friends that last all that time. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together because we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our understanding, and I believe he's here right now to help us do it. Lord, we just thank you that this is your book. It's not mine. It's your book. It's your word. And Lord, as we come to the book of Revelation now and we look at uh, the next couple of chapters, Lord, I just thank you that the great teacher of the church, the Holy Ghost of God is here to open our eyes and open our understanding. And Lord, we just receive it in Jesus' name. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him he's coming soon. All right, and, and I do hope uh, you're taking advantage of uh, the notes because you can just go to that QR code or uh, just go to the website and get those notes and you can follow along and it looks like we're going to compile all these notes and, and turn them into a study guide and then we're going to make it available uh, for folks all over the country on radio. Uh, so this word is going to go everywhere, amen? Has there ever been a time when America needed the Word of God more than now? Not that I've ever seen. No, no, we, we need the Word big time. And so we're going through the book of Revelation. Now I'm calling this tonight Postcards to the Churches because the Lord Jesus is going to focus on seven churches that were real churches um, back in John's time in the first century. Now the last one we looked, or the first one we looked at last time the church in Ephesus, but I want to do a little recap before we look at the other six churches, because what Jesus said to these six churches, the seventh one included, is, is, is for you and me, amen? So last time in our very opening study in the book of Revelation, we saw in chapter one that it has a key theme, and the key theme of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of all 22 chapters. It begins that way, and everything leads up to that, and then he returns, and then it also predicts what will happen after he has returned. But the whole theme is the return of Jesus Christ. So needless to say, he's coming back. Amen? Now, um, the return of Christ is called the parousia. That's the Greek word for it parousia, and it means 
presence or arrival. That's the second coming of Christ, the parousia. So when we say the parousia, we're talking about the visible return of Jesus to the earth. Every eye will see him. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That means the Jewish people. And all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I told you, they're all going to mourn. Why are all the tribes of the earth going to mourn? Because of what they missed. Because of what they missed. They're going to realize when he comes back, oh, all those Christians were right. They were telling the truth. And we missed it. And we're mourning. They're wringing their hands. They're in anguish over what they missed. Now, that's the key theme, but there's also a key purpose uh, for John to record this book. Uh, And it's found in verse 19, and it says, write the things that you have seen, past tense, the things that are present tense, and the things which will take place after this. So he said, John, I want you to write what has already taken place. So John writes about the crucifixion and resurrection, and his vision of, of, of the, the resurrected Messiah. But then he also deals with what was right then. And that's those seven churches. They existed right then. These are not make-believe or symbols or metaphors for church. These were seven real churches in real time, not too far away from Patmos where John was exiled. All right? So that's what was. So the first three chapters deal with what was and what is. But the next 19 deal with what will take place. So it's a profoundly prophetic book. It's the longest prophecy in the New Testament, book of Revelation. And then we closed out last time in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, with a look at the first of the seven churches, the risen Christ Jesus addresses, and that was the church in Ephesus. And if you want to get that, grab the notes and you can see what we said about it last week. So we're going to just pick up with these churches and let's see what the Lord Jesus, who says about every one of them, I know you. I know your works. I know what's going on in your midst. I know you. It's really something. He's shown standing in the midst of the seven churches. There he is in the midst. And there's nothing hidden from his eyes. So he moves to the second church after Ephesus, and that's the church in Smyrna. Now, the Smyrna church was the persecuted church, while Ephesus was the loveless church, right? They lost their first love. But Smyrna is the persecuted church. And look what Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Now, the angel, remember, Angelos, messenger, probably talking to the pastor. To the angel of the church the pastor, the leadership in Smyrna, right. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And that's something. They're they're materially poor, but Jesus said they're rich. Right? And we're going to see later with Laodicea, they were rich and they were spiritually poor. So, He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they're not, but are of a synagogue 
of Satan. That's strong words. They say they're Jews, but they're not. They say they're real and genuine and authentic followers of God, but they're not. Because these were the Judaizers. These were the Jewish people that literally followed Paul from city to city when he would preach, and all these people would get saved, and they would come along behind Paul and say, no, 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 listen, he's only told you half the story. You've got to combine Moses with Christ in order to be saved. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow Mosaic law. You've got to, be, you've got to, to follow Moses and Christ for your uh, salvation to be complete. And they were called Judaizers, and they plagued Paul. They, they, they were a thorn in his side. So Jesus literally says, they say they're Jews, but in my opinion, from where I sit, they are in a synagogue of Satan because they are taking away from the grace of God and making you think you've got to do works to be saved and not just by grace alone. Now let's talk about Smyrna just a little bit, a little bit of background. The city of Smyrna was wealthy. It was a wealthy city and it was famous. Yet, yet many in this church in Smyrna were suffering poverty and heavy-duty persecution. And Jesus assures them, he says, look, I'm aware of your suffering. I want you to stop and think for a minute. He's aware of your suffering. He said, I know what you're going through. I'm aware of it. He literally said, I'm aware of it. I see it. I know it. I feel it. When they persecute you, they persecute me. I know you're feeling the pangs of poverty. I'm with you in it. I'm walking through it with you. He's aware that they are oppressed. Uh, he actually tells them that they have the wealth that really matters, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. If you're saved tonight, you're rich. Amen. Right? You are. Because uh, let's take Elon Musk. He's in the news just a little bit these days, right? Bought Twitter. Now, I don't know if he's saved or not, but he's supposed to be the richest man in the world. But guess what? If he doesn't know Christ, he's materially rich, but it stops there. Because in his soul, in his spirit, man, as, as Jesus will tell the Laodicean church, you're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, poor, blind, poor, and blind, and naked. So from Jesus' view, you can have all the money in the world, be the richest man on the planet, but you're in poverty if you don't know him. Amen. All right? Because you're not taking any of it with you. Not one thing are you taking with you. Nothing. Salvation is true wealth. And they, they were experiencing strong persecutions that were primarily coming from these false teachers, these Judaizers that rose up to oppose genuine Christianity, which was you are saved by grace through faith alone. That's it. Saved by grace through faith alone. Nothing we can do to add even a scintilla of help that God needs to get us saved. No, it's all done. It is finished. And then Jesus says, and guess what? It's about to get worse for you folks in Smyrna. He said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. Did you catch that? Some of you are headed to prison. He said that to them. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Now, now Jesus knew what was coming before it arrived. Jesus knew what they were about to suffer before the suffering even happened. He knew. 
just like when he knew Simon Peter was going to deny him. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that when you are tested and you have failed miserably, your faith won't fail, but you will return. And when you return, you're going to be stronger than ever and you will strengthen the brethren. So he says, now he mentions 10 days. The devil's going to throw you into prison uh, for 10 days. Now, a lot of ways you can interpret that. I'll just throw this out. The 10 days, I don't think it was just 10 days. You're going to prison for 10 days. Nobody would sweat that that much. But he was, he was referring to the 10 terrible periods of persecution unleashed by the Roman Empire between 64 AD to 316 AD. They were under 10 terrible Roman emperors that persecuted them one after another. So many commentators believe that Jesus is talking about 10 days being the 10 seasons of persecution you're going to suffer under these wicked men, like a Nero who was alive when John wrote this, and uh, those that came later. They were terrible, terrible, terrible people, and the Christians suffered greatly. But Jesus promised a crown of life that, to those that stayed true to the faith. A crown of life. Stay true, you're going to get a crown of life. Now, I'll leave you with a nugget with, for every one of these churches. Here's just a, a takeaway nugget. Jesus knows exactly what we're going through, and he encourages us to keep our eyes on the coming reward. That's what he was doing. Get your eyes off your suffering, off of your poverty, off of the Judaizers, and get your eyes on the reward. Because eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? Amen? Now, the third church he addresses is in Pergamos. And Pergamos is the worldly church, all right? Revelations 2, verse 12, here's what it says about Pergamos. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. What's that talking about? The word of God coming out of Christ's mouth. I know where you live, where Satan, wow, this is another heavy statement. I know where you live in Pergamos, where Satan has his throne. First, he talks about the synagogue of Satan that these Jews belong to. But now he's saying, in Pergamos, Satan's got a throne there. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. So some believer named Antipas was martyred in Pergamos. And then he says again, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now I want to make a couple of quick comments. Number one, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once, like God. He is locationally somewhere. The legions of demons that are mentioned in Ephesians 6, the whole hierarchical structure of his kingdom principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, uh, that whole uh, demonic hierarchy, they're not omnipresent. They are, they are commissioned to go to different places. I can tell you, if you've ever traveled much, there are some countries you can fly into. And when you start getting into the airspace of that country, you can feel an oppression. 
because there is something over that country where the, the, the enemy has commissioned demon spirits to be there. But now I want you to know this, this is not embellishment. Jesus tells the Christians in Pergamos, Satan locationally has a throne in your city. That's not great news. Locationally, the devil has a throne in your city. That's what he said. He says Satan lives there, and he, that's where he has his throne. So if that's the case, where is he now? You know what? I don't care. I do care where Christ is, and I know where he is. He's at the right-hand side of the Father. But it seems to me a greater uh, activity of the enemy has found a way into America in the last few years, more than I ever remember. And that means we need to be praying, walking with Christ, preaching the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everybody who believes, and not be ashamed of Christ or of our testimony in him. Amen? Amen. Now, Jesus points out two false doctrines that had crept into this church, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'll tell you what the doctrine of Balaam is in a nutshell. It's very easy. It refers to the advice of Balaam to Balak, the Moabite king, where he encouraged the Moabites, Balaam did, he encouraged the Moabites to intermingle with the Israelites to sexually seduce them, resulting in God's judgment on Israel. And it was a dastardly thing that he did. Because remember, Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And every time Balaam stood up to curse Israel, God wouldn't let him, and the Holy Ghost came upon him, and he prophesied wonderfully. He even, he even delivered an incredible messianic prophecy. But that was only when the Spirit of God came upon him, which goes to show you God can use anybody, even a donkey. He can speak through anything. And Balaam was a donkey, right? He was not a good man. And when all of you know, Balak being frustrated with him and saying, you know, you didn't do what I asked you to do. I paid you money to do this and you didn't do it. Balaam said, all right, come here and I'll give you a little bit of counsel. You tell the Moabites, uh, you tell them to infiltrate the Israeli camp with women and the men will intermingle and the men will intermarry with them and they will be corrupted. And it's exactly what happened. So the doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine of moral compromise, which always leads to corruption. Are we there today? I mean, are we there today in ways you never thought you would ever see? I I mean, we're talking about being in the twilight zone and then some. But you know what? That's the doctrine of Balaam, but the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the same thing. Haley's Bible Handbook tells us, quote, sexual vice was actually a part of Nicolaitan heathen worship and recognized as a proper thing in heathen festivals. The priestesses of Nicolaitan idol worship were actually temple prostitutes. Now, this had somehow found its way into the church. And Jesus sees it. Now we go, how could they have ever let that happen? I ask you today, stop and think a minute. If you do any reading at all of what's going on in churches around the world, look at what has infiltrated whole denominations. We're marrying, not we, but they are marrying same-sex couples. 
They're ordaining active, outspoken homosexuals into ministry. And I'm sorry, you know, this isn't Jeff. This is what the word itself condemns. This, this, is, this is out there. And, and 40 years ago, would you have ever thought you would ever see an entire denomination or several of them sell out to that doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrines of Balaam. But it's very similar. And Jesus is saying to them, he gives them a word of correction. And it's a very simple word, repent. Repent. And he says, repent. Therefore, otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He said, I'm giving you time to repent. You better take advantage of it, because if they don't repent, I'm coming, and there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. So here's the nugget as you get away from this church. It's the responsibility of every Christian to discern between truth and error, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're all, th- this crazy Nicolaitan Balaam doctrine should have been spotted by the believers and resisted, but they found a way in. They infiltrated wolves in sheep's clothing, angels of light. We're going to see it again uh, in just a minute with another church that fell to this. As a matter of fact, it's the next one, Thyatira. Thyatira is the wrong doctrine church. Jesus' opening words tell us a whole lot. He says, this is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I want everybody to say that with me. He knows all the things I do. Right? He does. See, Santa Claus stole Jesus' line. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. No, no, no. Santa stole, stole that from the book of Revelation. Because only Jesus knows everything you do at any time. Right? And so watch this now. He says, he says, I've seen your love. I've seen your faith. I've seen your service. I've seen your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement and all these things. So he, notice, he gives you a word of encouragement before he comes in with the correction. And as with all but two of the seven churches, Jesus has a corrective word here for Thyatira. Now he's going to really meddle with their stuff. Look what he says, verse 20. I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. Now remember, who are these written to? They're written to the angels of the churches. What is angel? Angelos. What does it mean? Messenger. Well, he's not telling the angels of God all of this. This wouldn't be news to them. Who's he writing this to? The leadership of the churches. And he's saying, you have permitted this woman, Jezebel. What was she doing? She teaches them to commit sexual sin. There we go again. And to eat food offered to idols. Very, very similar to the church at Pergamos. Very similar stuff going on. And Jesus says, I've got eyes like flames of fire. My eyes see through everything. Okay? So he says, almost all of the Lord's message to Thyatira deals with a woman named Jezebel. Now, I don't know if this was her actual name, 
Because if you read the Bible at all, you know there was another Jezebel in the Old Testament who was bad news baby. She slaughtered the prophets of God. She was wicked head to toe. I mean, this woman was, the, was consummately wicked. She worshiped Baal. She led all of Israel into Baalism, idol worship. She corrupted the whole nation. Ahab, her poor little lackadaisical, lackluster husband, just followed her around, letting her take charge and take control. So it could be that Jesus uses this name just to let us know because we associate that wicked Jezebel of the Old Testament. He said, I want you to know this one that is, that is in Thyatira, she's just as wicked. And she's introducing idolatry and immorality into the congregation under the guise of being a prophetess. I've got the word of the Lord. I've got the word. Hama, hama, hama. I've got the word of the Lord. And, and here's what God is saying. And under the guise of being super spiritual, she came in under the radar. And the church leadership missed it. Because Jesus says, you're permitting this woman. What's up with you? You can always hear him saying, what's wrong with you? You should have spotted this. You should have seen this. Right? Don't you know what she's doing? Hasn't it moved through the grapevine? Don't, haven't you heard what she's up to? She's seducing the men in the church and teaching, uh, teaching moral laxity to the church in the name of Christ. A prophetess. Oh, Jezebel's so spiritual. Have you, been to, have you been to sit down with Jezebel and, and ask her for a word from God? Have you got a word from the Lord from Jezebel? Because she's really got it going on. But when she got you in her clutches, she brought another message. God doesn't care about fornication. God doesn't care about idolatry because, I mean, uh, adultery, because here's the deal. We're doing this in the name of the Lord. So somehow or another, she convinced them that this moral laxity was of God. And she did it by a spiritual, being a, under a spiritual disguise. Leading my servants astray, she teaches them to commit fornication and to eat food offered to idols. And the act of bringing idolatry and immorality into the local church is soundly condemned by the risen Savior. And once again, I ask you, what does Jesus think about what's going on in a whole lot of the church today? And does he know about it? Well, you better know he knows about it because he's got eyes like flames of fire. He cuts through everything. He sees everything. And he pronounces a sobering word of judgment because she refused to repent. Look what he says. I gave her time to repent. But she does not want to turn away from her, from her immorality. So the repentance season that Jesus gave her, she didn't take advantage of it. So the Lord says, therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. It gets worse. I will strike her children dead. Now, that doesn't mean her offspring. I don't think so. I think it means her followers, the offspring of her doctrine. I will strike them dead. We've got a serious judgment going through the church here. Then all the churches will know when there's dead people that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Whoa. I didn't write this. 
Jesus said this. So whatever you sow, you're going to reap, and you don't really listen. It's like when Ananias and Sapphira lied about what they gave to the church, and one dropped dead and then the other one. I guarantee you, uh, tithing got real straightened out right about then. <laughs> because they, they said, oh, we'll just tell a little white lies, so and we look more spiritual to Peter. Peter said, why'd you lie to the Holy Ghost? You didn't lie to me, you lied to the Holy Ghost. So what we need to see, what I want us to, to, to see here, um, well, there's a wonderful promise delivered to those that avoided her teaching. So here's the promise to those of us who hear false teaching and we resist it and, and, and refuse to let it seduce us. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. He said, deeper truths as they call them. Did you catch that? Jezebel was calling the moral laxity teaching deeper truth. But what does Jesus call it? The depths of Satan. He says, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. To them, I will give authority over all the nations. Amen. So when you hang tough and you resist evil and resist false teaching, once again, there's an incredible reward for those who hold fast to the faith. So here's the nugget. Jesus calls the teaching that justifies immorality the depths of Satan. So we can safely say that in, in not all the church, but in certain parts of the church in our world today, they have opened the door to the depths of Satan. Scary, scary thought. Now we come into chapter three and the fifth church, which is Sardis. It's in Sardis. Sardis was the spiritually dead church. The city of Sardis itself was very old and in material things, it was very wealthy in textiles, and in jewelry making. So they had a lot of money. They had a lot of commerce going on. And, but spiritually and morally, Sardis was depraved. They had allowed a prostitution temple to be built to Diana in their city. And they entertained a lot of mystery cults as well. And in these cults, you would see things like this. Emotional hysteria. Bodily mutilation was common cutting themselves, mutilating their bodies uh, in sacrificial offerings to their idols. The church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says they were spiritually DOA. I know all the things you do and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen the little bit that remains for even what is left is almost gone dead. So even the little flicker of life, they still had a little spark here and there. It was in danger of being snuffed out. They were almost, listen, there was almost nothing there at all but death. So Jesus comes in and he tells them what he sees. And he said, you want my opinion? You want what I'm, you want the truth? You're on life support. You got a reputation for you. You got what's going on. You, you got it going on. You're, you're one of the, you're one of the happening churches, but guess what? In, in, from my view, you're dead. The great physician had taken their spiritual pulse and pronounced them gone. On the outside, they might have been a beehive of activity, all kinds of busyness going on. They had a reputation around town, but spiritually folks, they were dead. And you know, that's where it really counts. You cannot look at, at a, a church's money 
or buildings or fame and say, well, they got to be alive because look at all this. No. You can have all that and be spiritually dead. The most important thing you and I can tend to in our life is to keep the flame in our own heart lit. Keep that flame lit with your daily devotional with God, which you cannot do without. And if you come here longer than two weeks, you know that I'm a broken record on that. You can't let your time in the word of God and in prayer fade. You've got to do it every day. You've got to do it when you're on vacation because there's no vacation from God. Right? Because we need it. We need it. So we got to keep that flame lit. And they had somehow missed this, a name that lived, but they're dead. Jesus says to them, repent, same word, and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, if you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. And we don't know what that meant, but it's not something I want to experience. So while we may fool others, Jesus knows our true spiritual condition. Amen. And your spouse probably does too, if you're married. Don't shout me down. <laughs> People say to me, no, I'm, I'm doing great. Just ask my wife. I say, you sure you want me to do that? <laughs> All right. We're coming to the last two churches, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the Greek. It's the spiritually alive church. The church of Philadelphia had faithfully proclaimed the love of God. I want to be a Philadelphia church. Amen? I want to be a Philadelphia church. Because look what they did. I know all things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. Can we give God an amen here? Amen. What was the door? I've opened a door for you to, to evangelize, to share the word of God, to preach Christ. You have little strength, Yet you obeyed my word and didn't deny me. That means so much to me because they're not feeling like Hercules at this time. They're not Samson here. They're, they're feeling like, man, I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm just not feeling super strong. I, I'm trying to take another step. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm, I'm really wanting. And Jesus says, look, all I need is a little strength because in your weakness, I am made strong. Philadelphia is only one of two churches that Jesus finds no correction for. There's no correction for them. The other one was Smyrna. And we see that Jesus opened a door for them to share Christ. As I said, nobody could close it. Even their enemies would have to admit that God was with them. Look, Jesus says, look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue. There it is again. The Jews who said they were Jews, but they weren't really because they were resisting their own Jewish Messiah. So they were in Satan's synagogue. Those liars who say they're Jews, but they aren't. They're going to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you're the ones I love because you have obeyed my command to persevere. I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. I want us to embrace the Philadelphia church here for a minute and just think. How many of you have ever felt like, maybe you feel like it now, I'm doing my best, but I sure don't feel like Samson today. Come on. I'm, I'm trying to put one foot in front of another. I'm, I'm trying to stay in the race. I'm doing my very best, but a lot of things have come against me, and I'm not feeling super strong. That's where I want you to see this 
Philadelphia church. They persevered with little strength, but Jesus didn't have one correction for them. He said, hold on to what you have. Can we say that together? I'm going to hold on to what I have. What do you have? Your salvation. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take away your crown. That's talking about your salvation. So here's the nugget. With even a little strength, much good can be done. Amen? Even evangelizing the world. Now we come to the last church. This one matters because I think this is the church of today. Here we go. The church of Laodicea, that's the lukewarm church. Now, listen carefully because this matters. I got a call on this tonight on To Every Man and Answer. And here's the deal. Some believe that these seven churches that we've just covered are not only real churches in John's day, but they also represent seven historical phases the church would pass through before Christ's return. So you had not just seven real churches, but you look at what Christ dealt with in every one of them. And if you look at church history, I wish I had time to go into it tonight, but if you look at church history, you can almost track the Pergamos church, the Thyatira church, phases that the church of Jesus Christ went through in history up to now. So I can't prove that that is an accurate interpretation I can absolutely prove the seven churches were real in the first century. These were real churches in John's day. Whether or not they represent seven phases, the church would consecutively, sequentially go through, leading up to the return of Christ, I don't know. I happen to believe it myself. I can't prove it, but I believe it. Saying that, Laodicea is certainly the church of the last days. That's the phase we're in right now. Now, saying that, that doesn't mean you've got to be Laodicean in in your walk with God. I think it can serve as a warning. Be careful that you don't go Laodicean, which is lukewarm. But I believe when we look at the across the church horizon today, what do you see? Do you see a red-hot gospel-preaching, world-changing, culture-impacting church? You see all kinds of problems, all kinds of compromise, all kinds of lukewarmness. Let's look at what Jesus says. Now, the Bible predicts that in the last days there's going to be a great falling away. It's called an apostasy. And the lukewarmness described in the Laodicean church could very well be the end time trait of professing Christians, many professing Christians in the last days lukewarmness. I'm kind of in, I'm kind of out. I got one foot in, one foot out. Oh, I like certain Bible verses, but I don't care for the other. So I'll, I'll obey these, but no, I'm going to be, I'm going to cherry pick the verses that I want to live by. And and, and so if I want to live another kind of lifestyle, well, I'll just pick up a little bit of this religion and that religion, a little bit of Islam here, a little bit of Buddhism there, a little bit of Far East religion, salt and pepper, my Christian faith with a mix of other faiths, Chrislam. Are you with me? You know, we don't need to be fanatical about this thing. It's called, you know what's called today? Deconstruction. Oh, I've deconstructed. People say that. I've seen so many YouTubes on it. It's so sad. 
uh, I'm, de- de- I'm a deconstructed Christian. What does that mean? Well, it means that I deconstructed all the Christian stuff that I was taught growing up and all the things that I presupposed were true from the Bible. I've deconstructed so that now I've, I've torn those beliefs down and I've replaced them with something else. So I'm deconstructed. Now, we have another word for that. At least I do. It's called backslidden. But you can put a fancy word to it if you want to. Oh, I deconstructed. Like you're some incredible intellectual that did so much thinking. And, and you've decided that this wasn't true and that wasn't true and the other wasn't true. And now you, being brilliant as you are, have deconstructed and now you've arrived at a more real ideology, philosophy, theology in your life. But the Bible calls it backsliding. You've, you've drifted from God, but that's free. That's not in my notes. I'm just throwing that out. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, is he even going to find faith on the earth? Did you know he said that? Luke 18, 8. Meaning there's going to be a great apostasy. Paul predicted 2 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4. He predicted in the last days, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and teachings that come straight from devils. Professing Christians will end up listening to devils. So here's Laodicea, the lukewarm church. You know the verse, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Do you know? that I use it for evangelism a lot. I have. But that's not what, what that verse is about. That's a Laodicean verse. That's the Jesus on the outside of the Laodicean church, knocking for permission to come in. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But he's supposed to be in the church, but Laodicean church has kicked him out. Whoa. If you'll just open the door again, I'll come in again and sup with you and you with me. But right now, we're separated. Amen. Now, he says, you say I am rich. I have everything I want. This describes the last day's church that is totally focused on material wealth and riches, not spiritual wealth. God wants you in a mansion. He wants you with the best car. He wants you on the best street. He wants you wealthy. You ought to be wealthy. It's all about material things. That's not the message of the New Testament. If I can be bold. If you can show me any verse that tells you that, I'm almost ready to say I'll eat the page, but I got to be careful. (laughs) But I don't think you can show me a verse. Because that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to make us spiritually wealthy. Spiritually. Not that he won't take care of your needs. He will. Not that there's anything wrong with prospering. There's not. But you can't make that the central message of the New Testament. He didn't die on the cross to make me rich. He died on the cross so that I could be forgiven and be filled with the Holy Ghost of God, which is exceedingly rich. But this Laodicean church, they say, I don't need a thing. That, that's their, their statement to that Jesus had heard them say, I don't need anything. But Jesus said this, you don't realize you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Ever redemptive, Jesus advises them to buy gold tried in the fire and eye salve with which to anoint their eyes that they might truly see. Gold represents the deity of Christ here. 
And the eye salve represents the spiritual illumination of the Holy Ghost. These Laodiceans were seeing yet blind, rich yet poor, and they were knowledgeable yet foolish. I believe we're in the Laodicean church age. Look around you. Look around you. Now, again, and I close here, does that mean that we've got to be Laodicean just because we're in the Laodicean church age? No. Jesus gave this to warn us so that we would spot it, recognize it, and avoid it. Because remember, this is things you have seen and things that are and the things that shall be. So this is a church that wasn't yet but would be. And it's all about money, not about spiritual riches. So let's stand together, can we? So we as Christians who want to please the Lord, we must resist a Laodicean spirit. I'm not going to be lukewarm. I'm going to be all in. Amen? Amen. So we covered the loveless church, the loyal church, the lax church, the loose church, the lifeless church, the loving church, and the lukewarm church. Next week, we're going to blast off because God is going to take John to heaven. And we're going to see what we would never see if he hadn't seen it. Amen? So let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you that you're the living Christ resurrected from the dead. And thank you, Lord, that you know what we're suffering. You know what we're going through. You know our battles. You know our pains. You know our disillusionments. You know our struggles. You know the temptations. And yet you say, hold on. Trust me. Don't let go. Be faithful. I'm going to see you through. And so, Lord, we cast onto you our very being tonight. Guide us, Lord. Lead us and help us, Lord. Let's sing one chorus tonight. Before we go, let's just lift our hands to the Lord and sing now. Thank you, Lord. What a Savior. What a bride. What a friend, lifter of the lowly, God, you meet me where I am, oh, Jesus. Yes, Lord. What a Savior, what a brother, what a Amen. If you witness to that, say amen. And let's give the Lord a hand. Amen.